My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. It is a fine time here. Uh, if I sound a little bit different, that's because I'm not in my regular recording environment. I am, in fact, on vacation. I did not have time to record beforehand, so here we are. So it is time for us to get into Genesis uh, chapter 2. We'll be starting with verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here we see on the seventh and final day of creation, God himself rested. This begs the question, does an almighty God need rest in order to recharge his batteries? The answer is no. In order to show us how to handle the work week and model himself in a way to show us how to rest? Absolutely, yes. Humans need to rest. We are not and have never been perpetual motion machines. We have to stop at some point in time. It is so easy to get lost in the grind and lose sight of what matters just to make money or to get a promotion or what have you. And that's just not good for the spirit. That's not good for the the body or the soul or the mind or anything. We can't let ourselves do that. And we also see here the formation of the Sabbath day, a day of rest that we now have instituted to be on Sundays, as opposed to the original Saturday that the Jews worship God on as Jesus arose on a Sunday. Either way, God himself implemented the day of rest where his name should be praised, worshiped, and kept holy which is why we do that to this day. Be very grateful that Christianity influenced culture enough to have two days of rest implemented in society for the most part, because I can all but guarantee that if it didn't, we wouldn't have the work week schedule we have at the moment, which has its own issues, don't get me wrong, but still could have been far worse. Now we go to verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Here we have... One of the sources for why the book is called Genesis, the Hebrew word toledot, which means generations, is where we derive the name Genesis from, as stated last episode, from the Greek word Genesis. Also here, we are first introduced to a name of God that goes beyond Elohim in the name Yahweh. In Jewish tradition, this name was never uttered out loud and would more often be replaced with one like Jehovah out of a desire to keep Yahweh as a name holy. But God doesn't hide his name from his people, and he encourages us to talk to him by his name. There is something to say about being respectful and fearful of God and his holy name, but we need not ever replace it for something else. And that brings us to verses 5 through 9. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we notice here, this is happening in non-chronological order. Man was created on the sixth day, but here... It is mentioned that after the seventh day of rest, we have this in uh, the book of Genesis so that 
we can gain further insights into what has already occurred. God crafts man in a manner unlike the other animals, making us tied to the very earth we live on and then breathed into us the life that we could not obtain through any other means. God then places man in the Garden of Eden, where we are introduced to the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we'll get to those later on. But for now, since we have finished with all of the creation narrative, we're going to go, as I promised, into the explanations some people bring up for how the world was made. And these are done in no particular order. These are not like my favorites, one through whatever we have number-wise here. So first off, we have the apparent age theory. And this idea follows with the concept that the Earth only appears to be billions of years old, and instead science and carbon dating are incorrect, and anything that would appear less than a several thousand year old Earth is factually incorrect. That's the basic premise. And this is one of the ones I find less plausible, and I'm going to try and keep my biases out of here. But as we all know, it's very impossible to do that completely. So I'm going to do my best, but at the end of the day, just know I'm just a man, and I'm going to make decisions like that. So... One of the reasons I find it less plausible is that even though we, those of us who study carbon dating know it is not as accurate as we would like it to be, the further back we go, it is still very useful when attempting to date something. And But this in and of itself doesn't disprove the idea of the Earth being billions of years old simply because the best science we have available isn't as perfect and exact as we would like it to be. Also, it relies on God being deceptive and how he formed the Earth for no good reason just so he could make it look gold, or as some proponents of this would say, and that he is treating, uh, testing our faith by placing dinosaur skeletons in the ground and making it look like the earth is older than it is, that does not sound like the God I know, who would willingly put those stumbling blocks in someone's place just to screw with them. He loves us a lot more than that. Now, next up, we have a theistic, yes, a theistic evolution. This is the belief that God himself guided creation to end up in its current state thanks to macroevolution, which is essentially species changing from one to another, i.e. an ape ending up as a human. This is different from microevolution, which is something we can absolutely 100% prove. Microevolution is genetic change over time. We can see this. I mean, every pretty much every high school biology class has proven microevolution is a thing. All you have to do is you know test these bacteria and go, oh, well, these adapted or these had these traits, and therefore they're going to uh, spread more of themselves that resist this antibiotic or what have you. Or this fly will be able to resist this and therefore will carry on its genes and therefore will continue on as a species. Microevolution, absolutely provable. Macroevolution is where I typically have a problem with this. But as we see as time goes on, there are other things out there that do suggest that. So this as a as a belief requires somewhat, as there are some aspects I can get behind, this requires a rather liberal interpretation of scripture, as we see that Adam is formed from the dust and not from any other source. However, there is a way to make this work in that humans and animals are carbon-based life forms. So essentially, we are all formed from the dust, and you could interpret it that way, but that takes a, a lot of leaps of logic and wild interpretations of words to make it work, so I don't put that much stock into it. However, if God did have to make the world through a macroevolution, then this seems likely enough to be plausible in my mind, but is nowhere near my favorite. Next up, we have the gap theory. This is the idea that the universe and Earth already existed before the creation week for an unknown amount of time before God went through the process of populating the universe with the entities he creates in the creation week. 
So this idea allows for the Earth to be old geologically, but not for species to be treated like this. And this was kind of first postulated by scientists in the 18th century as they were exploring te uh, plate tectonics and saying, oh, well, the Earth is actually a lot you know, older than we suspected it was. So that's where they get it from. But at that same time, when they were working through uh, anthropological digs, paleontological digs, it shows as well that what appears to be species far older than a theory like this would suggest. So I'm not against the idea or the premise of there being beings in creation that existed before God began the creation week, but I don't really see the point in making the earth significantly older than the creatures on it, except as a response to advances in science uh, pointing to this. Now, however, to give this due diligence, there is something to say that we don't know how much time passes from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. So it is possible for God to jumpstart the cosmos and then go into a literal seven-day period of time. Now, next up on our list is good old uh, framework hypothesis. Now, this one I'm not particularly a fan of, just to show my cards. It's a weird one. It's one, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't fully understand, and it's kind of... But it's kind of pretentious, to be perfectly honest, as an explanation. So basically, the first part of framework hypothesis says that Genesis 1 and 2 are not meant to be taken literally and are instead literary frameworks to help us imagine how it happened over time. The second part says that the first three days actually correspond to events that happen in heaven, and the second three days are where earthly creation occurred. That is to say, like, you know, God creates light, and on the fourth day is when, uh, you know, Sun, moon, and stars are actually created. So it's kind of flip-flopping and saying, these are what happened in heaven first. These are what happened in the earth after that. So I, I really just don't see the point of this one. <laughs> but if you understand it better than me, and you can handle with how probably bad the audio sounds right now, is, uh, Joshua has probably done the best he can to salvage any of this. So thank you, Joshua, for your help there. I know you're on vacation right now as well. And I appreciate all the help you give me. So if, uh, if you're saying, Christian, you really don't get it, well, your chances are you're probably right. If you want to explain it to me, please have at it. I'm willing to listen and correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Now, as I said, I categorically kind of despise this hypothesis. It is needlessly confusing and feels like it was deliberately designed to be superior and more intellectual than other hypotheses sent out there represent how creation could occur. But it, it also denies a literal interpretation of the six days of creation without proving how that couldn't happen, in my opinion. Once again, I'm not an expert on this, so if I mess something up, please let me know. Next, we have the day-age theory. This theory relies on the idea that the Hebrew word yom, which means day, doesn't always mean a literal day. And there is plenty of evidence to support this idea in that yom can mean age. Yeah, we see this in Genesis 18.11. It can mean time. This is Genesis 4.3. It can mean always. We see this in Deuteronomy 5.29. It can mean a literal 24-hour day, Genesis 1.8, year or years, which we will see in 1 Kings 1.1, 1, 1, and it can also mean a season, as in Joshua 24.7. Thus, in their minds, people come up with this idea. When Yom is used in a creation narrative, it is possible to make it mean a long amount of time rather than 24-hour literal days. Now, I'm not entirely opposed to this view either, as using this interpretation makes it very plausible to say that God spent an unknown amount of time in between each of the days we see in Genesis to create things. This is aided by the fact that Hebrew as a language 
God help us all, as I've studied it, as a language isn't as diverse as other languages, meaning that they would often use the same word in different forms to describe very different things. And the word changes based on who was speaking and the context of the speech. So you have to know this, but a lot of detractors will say, especially your hardline believers, is that in this particular instance in Genesis 1, it's typically going to be a 24-hour literal day. So this is all up to your interpretation there. I like this hypothesis sometimes, but not all the time. It's all over the place. So next up, we have our 24-hour literal interpretation. This will be the final one we cover. And there are more, but simply for time constraints and to not be speaking too loud at this point in time, I'm just going to cover those so they don't disrupt my uh, fellow vacation enjoyers around me. Now, this is perhaps the easiest to explain in that all seven days of creation were literally 24 hours long, as is suggested by the original word of, uh, definition of the word yom, and thus the earth is extremely young as a result. And the years range from you know, anywhere from like 15,000 years old to 6,000 years old, depending on who's saying, who's done the math for like the different generations of people to come after Adam. You know, some of this is shared with like scientific creationism as well, but it's not entirely a one-to-one. -one. And this is pretty much a very common view in your more evangelical circles. It is based on an extremely literal interpretation of scripture. Now, as far as all of these are concerned, like I'll admit, I flip-flopped on a lot of these for quite some time. Like some days, I'm with the 24-hour literal interpretation, and the earth is very young. And other days, I'm a day-age theory or gap theory. So like a uh, bullet to my head, I have to give one. Like right now, I lean more towards the, uh, the day-age, but like I could be completely and utterly wrong. Like one of the points we do like to bring up across this network is that you don't really know because we weren't there. And that, that's a valid criticism. It's like, yeah, we're not. We weren't there, but also we do need to look in the scripture and see what it says. So we can't just, you know, brush it off. And I'm not saying that's what we do. So wrestle with it, figure out where do you stand on all this? What are you doing with this capability, this idea? Next up, we'll be going through verses 10 through 17. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is a Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, one thing you'll often see, especially among uh, young earth creationists, is that they're going to try and figure out where exactly the Garden of Eden is located today. Now, I, now when it comes to this idea, it, it completely misses the point of the Genesis story to explain how we got where we are. And it is a very much showing someone doesn't really understand that we're not supposed to be there anymore. So if we try and find it, we're probably not. And we'll get to that when we get to Genesis 3, when man and woman are kicked out of the garden, but we're not meant to come back there in our current mortal state. We have lost the right due to living in a sinful nature that cannot exist in the garden in the way we were meant to be. So don't worry about where it's located. Like we don't know where the Pishon and the Gihon were located. If they were like 
Hebrew terms for rivers that yeah, may have dried up a while ago or no longer exist or, you know, the garden could have been a very wide location. It really depends. But it also ultimately doesn't matter because the point of the story is that we were in paradise and we got kicked out for not listening. It is where we came from and it is where we are banned from entering. Just like our ancestors, there's really no point, in my opinion, to go looking for it. But also we notice here that even in paradise, man is meant to work. Our lives are never meant to be lazing about doing nothing and reaping the benefit of someone else's hard labor. God made man work in the garden and more than likely we will have tasks in the new heaven and new earth. It will be nothing like the work we have now, but they will still be work. Work is good. Work now is more of a punishment for what should have been the work we were doing, which is maintaining the garden and looking after it and caring for it and being in fellowship with God. So we have a negative view of work sometimes. Well, that's because of what we have to do with the work now. And we need to separate our focus from that. It's like the work we're doing right now is nothing compared to the work we'll be doing for God later on. Now, God here then commands the man that he can eat of anything in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll discuss that more in the next chapter. But for now, we are shown that a choice has been presented to the man. He can either listen or give in to temptation. There is always a choice when it comes to whether or not we give in to temptation that will always lead into sin. The price of eating the fruit leads to death unless the man resists it. Once again, we'll get into that more when we get into Genesis chapter 3. Next up, we'll go through 18 through 25 and get done a little earlier. Like, I'm very sorry if this sounds poor. Like, I know Joshua did everything he could. And if it sounds amazing, then I'm complaining about nothing. Then praise his name a little more because the man knows what he's doing. He was able to fix what I probably made very bad. <laughs> so with that, uh, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every burst of the heaven. It's going to be bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living thing, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And a man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see here in this final part of Genesis 2 is that God himself recognizes that humans, unlike him, need companionship. You know, animals can make for fine companions, but they can never replace human contact. And the man, now called Adam, we finally see revealed in the Genesis 2, needs someone to be his equal yet opposite to fulfill the desire for companionship. God, in his love and kindness for Adam, then showed where this wouldn't come first. And then he created woman from Adam, tying male and female together forever and creating the ability for humans to procreate in order to populate the earth so that they wouldn't be alone. What we see here is God brings the animals first. And there's nothing wrong with the animals. Animals are great. I love studying them, most of them from afar. <laughs> but they're not the same as what 
is meant by God between a man and a woman. They can't serve the same roles. They'll never be able to speak to us in a way that men and women can. And here, too, we see the creation of marriage between man and woman so that they remain in unity together to experience love in a way that can never be replicated any other way. One is not held more important than the other, but the man leads while utilizing and listening to wise counsel offered by his wife. We see this plenty of times later on in Scripture. Go through the epistles. The supposed misogynist Paul really harps on the idea of men loving their wives like Jesus loved the church and women listening to their husbands, submitting to them in love in the same way Christ submits to God. It's from the very beginning. This beautiful union meant between man and woman to show love and affection. And sometimes, if that be God's calling for procreation to create children and to continue the human race, we're not meant to be alone. Not all of us are called to be married. I don't know if I am. There are some days I think I am. There are other days I think I'm called to singleness forever. I don't know. But God created more than just those original men and women. There are people around the day. Who do you need to seek out in companionship? Who are your friends? You don't need to have a spouse if God says you don't need to. If he does, you better listen to him. But God will always call us to be in fellowship with each other, to look after one another. And with that, finishing kind of short, and I do apologize for that, but I am in a bit of a rush. I'm a little tired from traveling 12 hours straight. I'm out of breath. It's not a good day. <laughs> but I also know if I didn't get this done now, it wouldn't get done and this would be late. And well, I had to pick between the two. So if that was something you didn't like, I don't blame you. We'll see you next time. But other than that, please, if you get a chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice, just to help us out there to increase people, uh, their awareness of the show. The more you do that, the more people will know it's there because that's how the algorithm works for whatever reason. It's just how it is. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at StarvingWritersGuild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then please check out the other members of the NSL Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at LetNothingBoovyPodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to His will and not mine. And let me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. <laughs>